Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1996 film Secrets and Lies. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, let's. You mentioned last week when you recommended this that uh, that Mike Lee was a uh, a filmmaker you particularly liked. Um, so maybe let's start with your history with him and with this film in particular. Yeah, I I can give you my history with him in terms of how many of his films I've seen, but I don't have a good origin story. Um, My wife and I have watched almost all of his films together. And so I asked her the other day, I said, you know, what was the first likely film we saw and why? And secondly, did we see Secrets and Lies in the theater or not? Uh, And neither of us can answer that question. Um, I can tell you that I started with uh, his second theatrical release, which was Life is Sweet uh, in 1990. Um, And so I I had seen everything he, I had seen the two, two of the three films he did before Secrets and Lies. So I was kind of attuned to see it. Whether I saw it in the theater or not, can't can't recall i'm sure i saw it about the time it came out so maybe it was the theater yeah yeah this is definitely the first film of his and maybe the only film of his that i was was acutely aware of because um in the 90s i was an oscars watcher and he was uh and this was nominated for not just best picture but actually quite a few um quite a few oscars so it was a movie that it's a movie that's where i knew the title and Mm -hmm. i knew roughly what it was about um I definitely had not seen this movie because uh, the other part about the nineties is I was in college. So I wasn't going to a lot of movies, but, um, but this was one where if you had asked me what this was about, I think I could have gotten close on, mm-hmm. on at least the, um, you know, two sentence plot description of this movie. <laughs> um, when you think about Mike Lee films, what are hallmarks of him as a filmmaker? Well, probably the most the most uh, significant or distinctive element of, of Lee is his, is his working method. Um, he uh, he he approaches his films improvisationally. Um, he knows the kind of the general outline of the story, but he really works a lot with the actors to have them research and create their characters. Often encouraging them to base the characters on actual people they know. So it's a little bit of method acting in that in that respect. Uh, and they still they spend a really long time in rehearsal and improvisation. And it's not as though anything goes. I mean, the, he, he directs the actors and ultimately he does come up with a screenplay. Uh, after all, he got nominated for best screenplay in, in, in 1996. But so it's a so it's a long it's a long rehearsal period. Um, and part of the effect, I think, is uh, Lee is very interested in, as you can tell from Secrets and Lies, He's very interested in ordinary life, ordinary people. And he recognizes that what he does, puts on screen is not real life, but it's a, we talked about this last time as well. It's, it's a little bit of a, how do you make something that is, that is artificial and yet at the same time evokes or creates something that looks very real. So it has almost a quasi you know, documentary um, style about it. He was very influenced by John Cassavetes' method. Cassavetes is another, is an experimental American filmmaker. Uh, and so that's, it was hard for Lee to originally get his films made because he didn't have anything to sell. He's like, I want to make a movie. Uh, well, what's it about? I don't know yet. I'm just going to, I just want to work on it. Uh, but once he established this method, actors, as you can imagine, you know, really love, love to work with him. Yeah. The impression I got from reading, and this could be, this could be wrong, is that in those, re- the, 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 the film is built in the rehearsals, the characters are, are constructed and he yeah. works closely with them. And in this movie in particular, working with them, in particular groups and then introducing them to the other characters, you know, in, uh, in a deliberate way. So, so like the, the character of Hortense being introduced to the family later on, you know, after they'd kind of built some of this stuff out so they could get some, 
uh genuine reactions to like oh hortense is black you know like like so so they already had their characters built before they that piece entered into it um but then the other piece and and, and you put a pointed to this is that by the time they get to filming it's actually a pretty tight script isn't it like like what i had read was there's lots of improvisation until they start filming and then right, right. then it's not improv anymore like it is this is the story they have created at that point yeah, actually, Mike Lee's background is both as an actor and a playwright, so he is no stranger to writing uh, to writing for actors. But yeah, you're right; he he likes to use the actors to kind of get to this point, uh, and then it gets becomes a script. That's interesting in terms of thinking about him as a playwright, because I looked at this movie and thought, oh, this. I, my first thought before I read about it later in, in the process was. Was this based on a stage play? Because it feels like, well, you could do, you, you could definitely do something like this on the stage, um, because you don't have, uh, you know, dramatic time jumps and things like this. Like it, like you said, it really is sort of this. Uh, these are these people's lives, and it's about lives intersecting and colliding at times. Um, this was really fun to watch this movie after the last two mo- films we watched, because I felt like, especially playtime was you know, a big formal experiment, even triplets of Belleville in its relation to someone like Tati is sort of a formal experiment. And this is just very different. This is a big kind of change of pace or contrast Um, because as, as as you mentioned, this seems so focused on richly developed characters and relationships, um, but that it has its, its uh, formal elements as well. I mean, I think that process is, is uh speaks to a kind of formalism i think about like uh sometimes the finite the end product of a piece of art doesn't you don't notice all of the formal elements to it but in in looking at the creation of it the steps of it you realize well, actually there is there is this form underlying it so that this story could only be this story because of the collection of people that that uh that he brought together yeah, Lee, Lee himself said about his films, he said, I, he said, I do make very stylistic films, but the style is not a substitute for truth and reality. And he, he describes it as integral and organic. So I think that's I think it's part of where the structure comes from. He's trying to figure out kind of what is what is the logic of these people's lives? What 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 organically would happen? And I think what, one of the critics I read said that one of the things about the film is that you don't need to suspend disbelief. And I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of films that one watches, somebody should say, well, I'm not sure that's really plausible. I'm going to have to kind of reserve judgment on whether or not that really can happen. And in this film, I mean, I think especially when you watch um, Cynthia's transition from her initial response to Hortense to her embrace of Hortense, it seems entirely plausible to me. Uh, in some ways, maybe it's speeded up a little bit for the sake of economy, but the I, I, I believe in the emotional arc that she that she she takes. Absolutely, because I mean, even the the, the way, I mean, and this is getting to the it may not be realist real, but it's it's so believable that that idea of like her first encounter with Hortense on the phone that it is this short abrupt I kind of don't want to talk about it then they have another conversation then she actually you can tell like oh this is like haunting her she calls back and then when she makes the call after they meet the first time and they end up meeting again and you realize like 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 all of that change feels like how could you ever get this out of your head once you've had that meeting had that encounter um one of the things that I find interesting in terms of uh, the way the way we're talking about this, you wouldn't think necessarily that this is a uh, 
cinematically necessarily have to be a cinematically interesting movie, but there are a number of, I think ways in which his process allows for him to create some scenes that are amazing on a, on a technical filmmaking level because of the experience these actors have with these characters. So, I mean, famously the, the scene where, um, Cynthia, Cynthia and Hortense sit in that cafe and it's, I think, eight or nine minutes unbroken. And you're seeing me talk about this. Arc. Cynthia goes on an entire arc in an unbroken shot. And it's a tight two shot of them sitting at a table. And I just as I watched it the first time, I just I was mesmerized by it. And I I wasn't fully tracking that this hadn't cut, but I was kind of aware of it. And it just it's just like, I don't know how you do that unless you have unbelievably skilled actors but also actors who understand their character and understand exactly what their character's going through at that moment i mean uh uh cynthia blevin is going through such a she gets a lot of showy stuff in that moment to do but the fact that hortense has to be in frame that whole time that's such a great performance of like i, I don't know this woman next to me who's going through an existential breakdown and I'm not sure how to relate to her at the same time. She is my biological mother. Like it's such a strange thing she has to go through. And she you people should watch that scene and ignore Cynthia and just watch, watch Hortense once. Cause it is a, that is also a great piece of acting. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me that there's great acting and there's great acting in kind of different registers. So um, you know, all three, we haven't mentioned Timothy Spall yet as Morris, but, you know, all three of those actors were nominated for Academy Awards. And I think what's interesting is, is Brenda Bleffen as Cynthia, she gets obviously the highly emotive role. Uh, Marianne Jean-Baptiste as Hortense, as you were pointing out, she's often either reactive or not reactive. I mean, so often as everything is falling apart, she's kind of like She's kind of stoical, almost like she's a participant, but also an observer. And then Timothy Spall, right? He gets to be Morris. He gets to be throughout most of the film. He's, you know, very kind and caring, and he wants everybody to, to get along. And then he has this beautiful explosion at the end of the film. It's like everything has been building up. So I just love the way that Lee kind of plays those different characters and different acting uh, modes kind of against each other. Well, I like the way with Cynthia, or no, excuse me, with, um, with Hortense, because she has to be so controlled whenever she's with Cynthia and Cynthia's family that we get like the scene of her with her friend early on. So you also get a rounded out picture of Hortense where it's like, yeah, Hortense is, is like a normal, pretty fun lady. It's just, you see like how tense you, you are, you're able to appreciate how tense those other moments are because you see her in moments of, relaxation with her friend you see her at work where she is doing her job and she's ultra competent and it's so so it's so interesting then i think to to see that person that we are first introduced to in one way have to act in another way um i think it, it helps you even appreciate that it helps me appreciate that more well and, and one of the reasons why i think that works is uh one of the one of the critics i was reviewers i was reading pointed out that um you know lee avoids kind of stereotypes so you have this uh, young, very successful, you know, black professional, and then you have these kind of underprivileged, uneducated whites. And in a way, what it does is it kind of takes the racial tensions out of the picture. I mean, the fact that Cynthia is white and Hortense is black is obviously a key to that particular secret. 
But the fact that she's black doesn't become the barrier to her acceptance by the family. The barrier is the secret that nobody knows that she's existed. So I think it's very canny by, by Lee to do that because Hortense is not needy. Hortense is a person with a pretty solid life and a pretty solid view of herself. It's just that she, she kind of wants to know this story, but it's not as though, um, it's not as though she is in some way um, fragile or dependent on finding this out. I mean, I love the way after she talks with the social worker, um, <laughs> Leslie Manville is a wonderful, that's one of the best scenes in the film. But it's, my fa- it's my favorite performance. I just love, and, Manville is, and, Ma- and Manville is one of uh, Lee's, he, she's been in five or six of his films, kind of he keeps going back to her. Yeah, but you know when she leaves that office that she is not going to go back there and ask them for, to help her search, that she is going to do it on her own. And I just love the way she has that kind of agency. So the whole notion of, you know, prejudice or whatever kind of gets kind of gets stripped away as a result of the way her character is built. Yeah, absolutely. And and in speaking of so so you know, we talked about that scene in the cafe. I think that is such an amazing scene that you almost missed the thing right before it, which is the Holborn station scene oh. that he shoots from across the street that so it feels like documentary spy mm-hmm. footage almost. And again, that is a long wide shot where you're walking you're watching you're watching them they're both on the screen and there's and Hortense is sort of circling this lady like she's aware there's this person here is is that the person and 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 there's a lot of nonverbals about well do I go up and say something do I wait for this person um and that that in and of itself is is such a, a um just a masterful shot of the way it the way that the frame gets filled with passing cars or passing people occasionally so you loot you you have to find them back again i just think that's such a cool cool shot i have okay this is a this is an entirely personal and completely unrelated to the film perspective on that scene sam but many years ago i flew out to a conference and uh, i was to be greeted at the airport by uh, a student worker who was uh, coming on behalf of the conference director and when I got off the plane, there was no way I could identify him. Uh, he had no sign or anything like that. And in fact, I never did find him. I ended up having to, to rent a car. Uh, and when I found when I found him later at the conference, he said, "Well, I just figured I would know what you looked like because I knew you were an English professor." Um, <laughs> so, so I was watching those two, and I was thinking, you know, how, how are they going to recognize each other? Right? Hortense points that out. You didn't even you didn't even say what you look like. And so I just love that sense that. You, just because you think you're going to know what somebody looks like, uh, especially because of your preconceptions, it's not actually going to happen. And so obviously Cynthia is not looking for a black or young black woman. Hortense is in a better position because she knows. But but even Hortense, she knows she's looking for a white woman, but right. she doesn't know exactly which one. Well, and that's what's so great about it is that is that, you know, Hortense is sizing up Cynthia. And you know Cynthia is not even aware of Hortense right. there because it's like, well, clearly that's not her. So I don't need to worry about that person. I need to keep looking for somebody else. And that's such a, a magic of of that setup. Well, it's it's an, it's another way in which Hortense has the upper hand, which again diffuses racial the racial aspect of the plot. I mean, I like the fact that um, when she keeps calling, it's like the phone is an attack weapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know Cynthia doesn't want to answer, but she can't keep from answering it. I I I just love I just love that that because a lot of us are that way, right? A phone rings and you can't help but pick it up. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and again, I think those are the things that touch on that. It feels it feels very real in that way. Um, I organized the rest of my notes around themes because I was just like, well, I don't really know how else. To, so so I mean, one of the big themes of this movie, um, 
as is dealing uh, is is loss and dealing with loss mm-hmm. i mean this is a this I, it's amazing if you start to track this this is a movie full of dead missing or absent parents yep. and it's like and everybody has those and they're they're even having they're all having conversations about how do you um how do you relate to that or like you know like like when um maurice and monica are talking about when her it's when her father died i think yes yes yeah and and sort of the different reactions to that and her brother is gone and she mm-hmm. she has no feelings about that and you know maurice had clearly has all these so so it's it's full of that and 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 then and there's i think at least twice in this movie some and it's different people each time somebody asks a question which is functionally can you miss something you never had yes yes um which is so so that that jumped out at me as like clearly lee is interested in that question like like obviously you there is there is the loss of the things you've had but is there also loss of things you never had is there a is just that vacuum also a kind of loss that you need to reckon with there's something, and maybe this is uh, stereotypically British, right? But there's something about the difficulty of facing loss and the difficulty of dealing with the emotions that uh, that that loss has has created. And to me, that's one of the bit that that is one of the big themes of the of the film. In that your emotional struggles um, don't affect just you; they affect an entire ne- the entire an entire system. And in this case, it affects the the, fam- the family the family system. So. Um, you know, it's 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 what you don't. You know, can you miss something you don't have, and can you uh, can can you have a an effect not only from the words you say, but from the words you don't say? Mm-hmm. Because that's really what's driving a lot of this drama is what people don't say to each other. You know, why don't why doesn't Morris pick up the phone and call Cynthia? Why don't why don't he and Monica talk to them about their difficulty having having a child? It's all these things that people withhold, you know, secrets obviously, and then the lies that cover them up. That's what that's what Lee wants to kind of peel away. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. It's like it's like by having these things that you won't say, eventually it leads to you saying nothing. <laughs> I mean, wow. it, it leads to it just becoming easier to avoid, and 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 so so you get those breakdown of those relationships. This is also a movie full of surrogate or adopted parents. Mm-hmm. So Hortense is obviously adopted. Cynthia was raised or Cynthia raised Maurice. So she is both his sister, but also kind of a forced adoptive mother. Um, clearly Roxanne has this in the in her past has this deep relationship with Morris and Monica where, where, you know, in some ways she's, she seems closer to them than she does to her mother. Um, and he, you can tell from things she says later, it's like you, you, you said you would always tell me the truth and you always told me the truth. And, and clearly there were things that they weren't saying. Even Jane has that line at the end where she says, I wish I had a father like you. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's like, even she is, I mean, the fact that she's invited to this family dinner and, and that, that she is, is recognizing Maurice as a kind of father figure. You have Hortense readopting Cynthia basically as, as a mother, um, and then Hortense has this line that, and I, I, I stopped and listened to this a couple times because it's just in there. And I, and I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about this line, which is when she's talking to her friend, she says, mm-hmm. "We choose the parents in this life that can teach us something, so that when we get to the next life, we get it right." Of course, sometimes it doesn't work out. 
that's that that line seems planted in this movie but i'm not entirely sure what i want to make of that yeah that's a very odd line and of course her friend finds it an odd line as well yeah, just sort of so, yeah i i don't think she's talking about reincarnation i think i think you know i think she's talking about kind of the stages of life that one that one goes through and of course you're right it's it's a really it's a really important line because um Having met Cynthia, she could have just either been disappointed or she could have been angry or she could have turned away from her. But somehow she recognizes her as somebody with whom a relationship would actually be beneficial to, to both of them. And, of course, it's, it's also a wonderful line because it throws conventional wisdom on its head, right? We always say, oh, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. So I love this idea that, no, actually, you, you, you can choose your family. And it, of course, gets reflected in the remark that Jane makes that you decided, right? She turns to Morris and says, you know, I wish I had a father like you. And Hartense's remark tells us, well, maybe you can. You know, if you want to, if you want to have a father figure, a mother figure who serves that particular, uh, gives you that particular help or assistance, yeah, actually, maybe, maybe you can actually do that. Well, I, I will say that theme resonated with me um, in, in, in my life. My, my dad is the youngest of 12. Mm -hmm. So his parents died. I was really young when his parents died. My mother's parents were divorced and they lived in different parts of the country. And we didn't see them very often just because of distance. So I grew up with adoptive grandparents, basically oh. like one of my dad's teachers who lived in the town where, where, where I grew up, like functionally was like an adopted grandparent like so it's and and i feel like my my parents built out a family that they chose and so i had aunts and uncle people that felt like aunts and uncles that i was not related to people that felt like grandparents that i was not related to so i i resonate with this idea um just because of circumstance you know in in that way mm -hmm. um another thing that i think is an interesting theme in this movie i mean i think it's no mistake that hortense is an optometrist Right. You know, which deals right. with vision and how we see things that uh, Maurice is a photographer, which also <laughs> deals with with looking at things, which, you know, um, having a photographer's eye. Um, and so I was thinking, well, that's interesting. So I was thinking about the other occupations that people have. Um, so, well, for one thing, I, I, I want to circle back to the photographer, because I think that one's more complicated than than the optometrist seems like clear what that is sort of getting at but if but I was, I was thinking about the other people and it's like okay what does monica do well she she's basically a home decorator she makes you know at least in her home right she's like it's about creating appearances and keeping up appearances and uh roxanne is a street sweeper cleaning up garbage right yeah. um and and i was thinking about what what uh cynthia does and i'm like well what does that have to do with anything? then i realized like what is a box? A box is either either <laughs> something where you give someone a gift or it's where you hide something away. And I thought, wow, these are all such on the nose kind of things. It's like, it's great. It works really well because it didn't strike me until the second time I watched the movie. I thought all of these occupations kind of speak to things. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's really good. I, I don't know if we need to include Paul or not, but Paul is a scaffolder. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's just dangerous. I mean, and well-paid. Those are the two things we know. <laughs> Uh, but I think the photographer one's really interesting because at one level you could you could make the argument while well, his job is to see the world and capture the world. But I love my among my favorite things in this movie are all the scenes of of Maurice at work. I love those. And what's interesting is we're seeing through his camera. We're seeing through his eyes. So we see what's actually happening, and then we see the moment that he captures and preserves. 
And sometimes the moment he captures and preserves doesn't really bear a lot of relation to what's happening in that moment. You know, if he, if he gets them to look at the camera and smile, the two people can be arguing, but if he can just turn it a little bit, all of a sudden a different story gets told. Yeah. 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 My, you know, one of my favorite scenes is that, is that montage. Uh, and you and especially especially the Greek couple that start arguing over wearing the glasses and you want to show off the ring. And by the time the picture is taken, you you feel like, well, these people are like really irritated with each other. And yet the picture is going to make it look as though, yeah, this is a very happy occasion. So it's obviously about, you know, how reality is manipulated, how seeing may not necessarily be believing because there may be more to the story than you actually can 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 see. Um but my favorite, my favorite scene with him is the is photographing the, the young woman uh, who's uh, been injured in the accident, mm. right? Uh, and there, the, you know, it's a couple of things interesting about that. One is it's not about hiding the truth; it's about doing the best you can to reveal the truth, right? He wants to get the lighting just right, so she says, you know, so you really can accentuate that scar. Um, but at the same time, it becomes and maybe this is a little cliche, but it, it worked for me. You know, it kind of becomes his comment on how, well, life, life isn't fair. You know, you mm-hmm. can't. He says that to her. Yeah, yeah, he says that. It's a literal line. It says life, life isn't fair. And, you know, to me, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, so why does why does Lee include that particular scene or that particular comment? Because in some ways it actually does comment on other lives in this in this story. Right. Because the fact that uh, that Morris uh, and his wife and Monica can't have children. That's not particularly fair. Uh, the fact that um, Cynthia got pregnant with Roxy and then the American guy left, that's not fair. The fact that Cynthia got pregnant with Hortense, that's clearly not fair. Um, the fact that people don't tell each other the truth, that's not fair either. So I think what looks like, you know, this kind of isolated cliche moment actually is a comment on a lot of a, a lot of the action. And it's also a suggestion that things that aren't fair, it doesn't mean that they can't somehow be addressed. And they can't somehow be, be, be rectified. I mean, I think it's Morris who says at, at the end, um, he says, if we, if we tell the truth, no one gets hurt. Which isn't the way we normally think about the truth. Right? We all think about the truth, mm-hmm. the truth hurts. But at the same time, they've seen what happens when the truth doesn't get told. So again, that photographing of that scar is a really significant uh, and, and explicit effort to tell the truth. Yeah, and and I think I mean that's so much of this movie is about sort of breaking breaking through that. And and what I think is interesting is when Maurice has his his blow up, and he you know and he uh, whether it feels awkward or not when he actually says the line "Secrets and Lies," yes. um, it's sort of like when a band plays a song where it's like this is also the title of the album or the name of our band is in the song. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but what, what he's, it's not just about secrets and lies. It's a, you know, he says, we're all in pain and we refuse to share our pain. Right. Right. And like, and that, that there's this sense that, you know, maybe that's the only way you start to heal is by not only admitting your pain to yourself, but, but sharing it. Um, Because I think there is this sense of like, what are the things that we hold as secrets or what we lie about, but there are pain and our shame. Um, and that those things will eat us up and those things will destroy, will destroy relationships. I mean, that's what he says to, to Monica is like, we've ba- we've been keeping this secret and um, I love you, but it's tearing us apart. 
Yes, and he and, and and later when they're in bed, he says, you know, you don't love me as you used to, and they have to have that kind of rec- rec- reconciliation. What I find ex- especially interesting about that scene is after he says that, and you get kind of this this hug, right? You get Cynthia, Hortense, Monica hugging. Uh, everybody's crying, and Roxy is keeping her distance. And Cynthia says, "Oh, Roxy, dear, please." And then Lee cuts. And you never know. Mm-hmm. You never know. You guess that maybe Roxy came over, but it, it's a really interesting moment of withholding from the audience because part of me thinks, well, it's a way of saying, you know, the resolution isn't that easy. So Roxy maybe eventually gets there because you see her and Hortense having that lovely moment in the garden. But maybe Roxy is not quite ready to do it at that point. And that seems very realistic to me as well. It keeps, it keeps the whole thing from feeling uh, kind of glib uh, because that's a, pretty, that's a pretty long emotional journey to make in a very short time because it turns out this is the first time she's even heard about her own father. Yeah. You know, so she's, she's absorbing a lot in that scene. So I really like that restraint on, on, on Lee's part. Well, and it keeps, it keeps uh, um, what Maurice says to her at the bus stop true, which is you don't have to say or do anything. Yes. You just have to listen. And, and, and that's all that we see her having to do, you know, in that moment. Uh, and it reminds me of the, uh, when he's taking people's pictures, he often says the line, you're under no obligation to smile. It's like, <laughs> you, your reaction to this is yours. You know, what you want to do here is yours, but like, but you have to be in the moment. You have to be on the camera, but you're under, but you're under no obligation to smile. You have to be part of this family. You have to be here. You're under no obligation to react in a particular kind of way, but, but you do have to be here for that. Another thing that gets withheld um, and... I didn't really see this mentioned, um, but I find it interesting, you know, that, that Hortense as this outside figure to this 21 years of secrets and lies, you know, because she in some ways doesn't know any better. She becomes this disruptive thing. You know, she's not trying to, but she definitely is. She's calling Cynthia because she wants to know things. And um, I've, you know, I also, there are elements of my family where we're very private people, even private with each other. And it's there. Are, I know that feeling of like growing up with questions that you're somehow, you somehow know from an early age, just not to ask. And it's not until somebody from the outside comes in and sa- and asks the question and, and it occurs to you like, that never even occurred. Like, I have been so conditioned to not ask that question. It never occurred to me to ask anymore, mm-hmm. you know. And but so, for somebody else, like, well, isn't that the most obvious question you would ask? So I, 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 I like her sort of um, the role she plays in this. But what's interesting is she twice asks Cynthia about her own father. Mm-hmm. She asks him at the at the the cafe, and then she asks him after she tells Rox Roxanne about her father. She says she, she asks him. The first time she says, I can't tell you that. And then the second time she says, don't break my heart, darling. Yeah. So we never know. We don't know if that's a story that she eventually hears. Is that's a story she never hears? Um, but, I, but I find that so interesting that there is this, this other piece there as well that is withheld from us. And it, I mean, it could be for any, for, for a number of reasons, it could be withheld from us. Well, it's interesting because Hortense actually, another interesting thing she says to her friend in that scene you talked about earlier is you don't pursue things because you're brought up not to. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of everything. I, mean, I, I, I can think about certain things in my family where, you know, um, there, there was mystery surrounding the early death of, of somebody who would have been my great uncle if he had lived. And, and I can remember, you know, it was like, well, you don't really talk about that. You know, we, we know he died, but it was kind of, you know, we, you, don't, you just don't go into that. Um, ultimately, actually, I did ask my grandmother and she actually shared everything she knew about it. So it's like it didn't really have to be a secret after all. But I think we all have those sorts of things in our families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another theme that this movie's about, um, which I hadn't occurred to me to as a theme, but this is uh, made in a world of um, evolving ideas about adoption. I mean, this is one of the things that's great. That social work scene is great because Manville's great in it, and the character she creates is, um, as somebody who meets with with people um, in in a sort of uh, very light counseling setting, like I get that idea of having. It's she's both relating to the person in front of her and kind of running through a script as well. Um, mm-hmm. And she and but she's also laying out changes that have happened in the law. So apparently, since 1974 in Britain, the laws changed about. Um, sealed birth certificates and people's right to know who their biological parents are. So we're, we're learning about that through her. Um, But as I was reading about this movie, this movie became a symbol for calls to change those laws in other places as well. The U S being one of them, that there were a series of positive protests around this movie where people would, people who were, you know, kind of pro ripe rights of adopted children would, would, positive protest this movie to call out like we need these laws changed here too like people have the right to know these things so um that was one of the i don't know if lee was interested in that specifically but that but he was interested in the the issues that arise from um adoptive children as they grow into adulthood wanting to know and and their rights or not rights to know well it's interesting too because the right to know in this film anyway isn't isn't couched in you know, there are kind of practical terms in which you can couch it, like I need to know because I need information about my medical history, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the one reason people often give. But in this film, it's all about I need to know because I need, I need, a, sto- I, I need a full story. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, this, this is a, I, I, I can't exactly understand my life without knowing who this person was, even why this person gave, gave, gave me up. So it's, it's really about well, it is about simply pursuing the truth because the truth needs to be known. Uh, and so it's really a narrative urgency uh, and an identity uh, urgency. Yeah. And, th- and there's just a great moment where the, the social worker says, like, to, to your point, like, I know you have this desire to know and you have the right to and all of this. And she says, but the thing you need to think about is when this person gave you up, mm-hmm. they thought they would never see or hear from you again. So you need to consider that you may be really interested and excited about what will come, come of this. This may be the worst thing that happens in their lives, yeah. you know, like, like, and, and I, I just, that scene is again, it, it's such a great character, but she's laying out a lot of philosophy in that moment to, and stuff to, to wrestle with and think about like, you know, you want to sort of be on Hortense's side, but, but there's a big warning that comes out there as well. Um, so I, I just think that's a, that's sort of a, a, a great, uh, a great moment. It's, it, it's really a packed scene because there's, there's so much going on in terms of Manville kind of wanting to encourage her, but wanting to warn her and, you know, kind of giving her information a little, little bit at a time. But it's interesting to me because that kind of, that, that reflection on, 
you know, kind of be careful what you what you pursue, you know, what can of worms you open. That comes back in the in the penultimate scene after the big blow up. And Morris says to Hortense that she's brave. He said, you wanted to find the truth and you were prepared to suffer the consequences. And it's and it's interesting that, you know, she does sit there and she has to she has to suffer a lot of consequences in terms of seeing how she's become the catalyst for this act, which is both destructive and yet at the same time, tremendously healing. Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's even the moment when she goes to Cynthia and says, I think I should leave. And Cynthia's yeah. like, no, yeah. you yeah. stay, you stay here. Cause like all of this is happening now. Um, and this is, and basically this is your family too. Yeah. Um, uh, are there other things uh, that you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I wanted to mention, um, you know, we talked earlier about how Lee develops the film and, you know, it's, it's structured in a way that kind of, he, he's trying to go for kind of an organic structure. And so I, w- I was thinking a little bit about what looks like a scene that doesn't necessarily fit in, which is when Stuart Christian, uh, the former owner of the photography shop, comes along. And, and initially, you know, there's this whole drama with you see him lurk, lurking outside and you think somehow he's connected to the, to the woman with a scar, right? And, and so there's this, this nice little kind of um, misdirection uh, moment. Right? Yeah. So she has nothing to do with her. And then he comes in and they have this kind of, you know, confrontation. He's gone off to Australia. It hasn't worked out. He's obviously down on his, on his luck. Um, and so you kind of wonder, well, you know, what exactly is that doing in the film? You know, one, one test I would often tell my students when we would think about, how well structured a, a work of literature is, I would say, well, what would happen if you took this scene out or if you put this scene somewhere else? So if I think about that with, with this scene, I think there's a couple of kind of important things about it. One is that it does give you a little more depth to Morris's character, right? You kind of find out that, that Morris is actually quite, quite capable that he's really built the business himself. And he's also, and I think this is important in terms of anticipating the barbecue scene, he's actually quite capable of asserting himself. So even though he doesn't get into any kind of a deep emotional uh, exchange with Stuart, he does stand up to him in terms of, no, I built this business. But at the same time, he makes that kind of conciliatory offer. Well, yeah, I, I I could lend you a camera, right? Which of course is, very true to Morris's character. He wants everybody to be happy, even though he doesn't actually give him a camera. And then after after uh, Stuart leaves, he says another kind of cliche thing, right? But there, but for the grace of God, you know, go I. So I just think it's a moment of the, could the film survive without it? Well, it could, but it also gives you some deeper insight into Morris's character, and importantly, you get Monica and Jane watching how Morris deals with Stuart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely well and it yeah there's i mean i don't know i presume monica has been around the the uh the office other times but there is this sense of like uh as a kid when you see your parents at work and you realize that this person is a professional and good at what they do and you know and, and able to to deal with situations that seem difficult you, you you sort of um get get a sense of that um another thing that i that i think is really great in this uh in the screenplay and just in the way the story's told is when at the day of the barbecue, you get all of this amazing kind of passive aggressiveness between Monica and, um, and Cynthia, where, 
you know, when she's doing the tour, the little comments that each of them are making about each other and to each other. And it's, it, it, they're very biting, but they're also subtle enough where it's like, uh, I, uh, it, it's, 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 it's awkward in the best possible kind of, and it's, it's, the, the best moment of this is in another one of those great long shots when they're at the sitting around the table and it's like, he just kind of pops the camera there. So you get this, you get this shot of everybody at the table and Morris in the background and you get, you know, almost Altman like overlapping conversations, but in mm. this smaller space where some of them are mundane things about what people are eating. You notice that Cynthia has taken over the role of I'm going to be the person who gets everybody's salad because I'm caring for people. Yeah. And you get you, you get Monica like taking the offense at like, I can do this myself. I'm the host. Like, it's it's that is again to to your point to like a very real moment. It's almost hard to track because they're also talking about like what people are drinking and the utensils they're going to use. And if there's butter for the potato, like all those things are happening. And it's a, it's just a great, great scene for thinking about all these characters in relation to each other. And then they're also peppering Hortense with questions like they're interrogating her to figure out why she's, why she's hanging out with Cynthia. Um, if somebody wanted to, um, dig deeper into the Mike Lee filmography, what would be the next? Yeah, I, I think I would go back and I would start with Life is Sweet. That's another one with Timothy Spall. And like I said, I started with Life is Sweet. So I, I, I like that one. Um, if you want something a little grittier uh, that kind of gets into social issues, Vera Drake uh, is very good. And then if you want something that's kind of atypical Mike Lee, but a lot of fun is Topsy Turvy, which is about the Gilbert and Sullivan uh, collaboration. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. I got to do one more. I love Timothy Spall and Mr. Turner, which is a biopic of the, of the artist Turner. But to answer oh, your question more directly, uh, Sam, go, I'd have people go back to Life is Sweet. Uh, all right. So what do you have for us for next week? Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting. In an interview, Lee mentioned six filmmakers that have influenced him. And we have watched films by four of those. Uh, Jean Renoir, uh, Rules of the Game. Um, Sudigit Ra, you know, Pant Pantra Panchali, um, Frank Capra, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Breathless. So there's only two on that list that we haven't watched. Uh, one of whom is Fritz Lang, which we're not going to do right now. But the other one is a really big one. It's uh, Yasujiro Ozu. And we, of course, have done the other. He's one of the big three Japanese directors, right? So we've done Kurosawa. We've done Mizuguchi. Um, but we haven't done Ozu. And the film in particular that uh, relates to this film is Tokyo Story. So that's Ozu's 1953 masterpiece. I'm so excited. This is a movie I've been wanting to watch for about a year. Mm -hmm. It's it's really high on the sight and sound list. It's in the yeah. top three. And it's like, I've, I've wanted to find a reason to watch this. And now I have it. I couldn't it. be could not be more excited. Yeah, yeah it's a great uh, film. All right, Barrett. Well, thank you so much for recommending this. Uh, I this movie, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's it's just really full of fantastic moments, and this is one that stuck with me with a lot, a lot to think about and a lot to chew on. So, thank you so much for recommending this movie and for having this conversation. Uh, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Tokyo Story in the video store. <laughs>